You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. So we're joined today by Larry Loftus, who's the international best-selling author of the nonfiction spy thriller Into the Lion's Mouth, the true story of Dusko Popoff, World War II spy patriot and the real-life inspiration for James Bond, which has been translated into multiple languages around the world. Prior to becoming a full-time writer, Mr. Loftus is a corporate attorney and adjunct professor of law, and his latest book is Codename Lice, this true story of the woman who became World War II's most highly decorated spy. So welcome, Larry, and thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Thank you, Vince. Thanks for having me. So our, our listeners may know the name Odette Sampson. There's a number of books written about her, including one she wrote about herself. Um, so what made you want to tackle this subject, and really what 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 is this book bringing that's new to the conversation? Sure, sure. And the 1949 book, She Did Not Write, that was written by a gentleman by the name of Tickle, who was uh, loosely affiliated with intelligence. And, and she it was an authorized biography, but that was 1949 and everything was classified. Most everything was still classified. So there's not much they could put in. A lot of the names were changed and there's almost nothing about Peter Churchill, um, who is really a very important part of the whole story because he was her commanding officer and, of course, whom she fell in love with. Um, so there's only that. And then there was a kind of a, almost a paper that was done a few years back by someone in England that, um, that uh, really doesn't even bother mentioning. And that's it. So there really hasn't been much out there at all about her. Um, and that's part of the attraction to me because uh, in the U.S. at least, I mean, I I worked for about three years on my prior book and had not heard of this woman. And so, in fact, I was, which brings up another story, because I was really a little bit depressed because I thought with the book that I had just finished, Into the Lion's Mouth, I had the, the best possible story you could have. And I thought, I'll never get a story this good. I mean, Popoff was the inspiration for Bond. He warned about Pearl Harbor. He was a ladies' man. He, he did all these incredible things. And you have all this nonstop action and cars blowing up and 
all this great international stuff. And I thought, there's no way that I'll find anyone close who is fun and exciting. And so for a couple of months, that was true. And I researched and couldn't find anybody. And I, and I just, you know, I went through the, I spent a lot of time in the British archives and I couldn't find anybody. And then eventually I came across uh, a German, <laughs> a German, uh, a book by a German who, who Hugo Bleicher is his, his name. And he was probably the greatest pie catcher in history. And I'd come across him in my research, I had not spent too much time um, looking at him, but he was the link that, that from my general World War II research to Odette. And uh, he wrote a book called Colonel Henry's Story. And this was in 1954, I believe. And in the story, he outlines how he broke the largest allied network at the time in France, which was inter-ally, which was huge. It had over 100 agents. And he single-handedly broke it, arrested over 60 agents. I mean, he became a legend within the Abwar, and even the Gestapo knew about him, and he was he was a star. So they turned him loose, and in the book, he mentions a second uh, network that he goes after, and it just so happens that it's an SOE network, and um, it, he mentions a woman named Lise, L-I-S-E. Of course, that's her cover name. He doesn't know that that's not her real name. And when I started reading what he was saying about lease and this other network, I was really intrigued. God, this is amazing. So I kept, you know, started digging and doing research. And I started with Pickle's book in 49. And then uh, Peter Churchill had written three memoirs. So I read those. And then, you know, I went to the archives and started pulling their files and read all of Odette's files. Um, and the more I read, the more excited I got because I thought, lo and behold, this, this story has more chills and thrills than even the pop-up story. And with what I do, nonfiction thrillers, which is very hard, <laughs> it's very hard to do because you have to have a true story that has not just one cool, exciting, fun thing, but a lot of them. And in fact, as Kirkus Reviews noted, this, this book ends, every chapter ends in a cliffhanger. So I was extremely fortunate and that's, that's how I found her. One of the interesting things about writing a nonfiction thriller is also the dialogue and a lot of, you know, you almost, it's almost written like a novel and that there's a lot of dialogue. Is that pulled from other books? Is that pulled from imagination? How do you fill in some of what really comes across as being a novel with the dialogue in a nonfiction book? Sure, sure. My um, my editor's boss asked the same question because when you read it, it sounds like it's a novel, and it's not. It's a 100% factual. It's nonfiction. And, um, you know, what she said was, gosh, this, this sounds, you know, like it, it's like it's a, you know, a regular thriller that you read from, you know, Vince Lynn or anyone else. And she said, why don't we do an intro, uh, which uh, if you got an arc, an advanced copy, then it wouldn't be in that. But we, we did a little intro, a preface to explain that every quote that you see in the book is verbatim out of primary sources. Um, so there, because when, when Odette came back, the British intelligence debriefed her and because they wanted to know the whole story. She'd been in captivity for, you know, some two, two years. So they wanted all the details. And, and so just that alone, there's 20, 25, 28 pages, single space of her explaining what happened. And, and on virtually every page, she gives the dialogue. She said, well, so-and-so said to me, quote, and I said, quote, and he said, quote, so that's, you know, that's as good as you get. That's from the horse's mouth. That's, a, you know, a primary source. And Peter did the same in his memoirs because Peter is writing first person and he's putting a dialogue in, his dialogue with he and Odette back and forth. Um, and then Bleicher does the same. So I've got all these primary sources 
and that's where the dialogue comes from. I invented nothing. It's all verbatim right out of the right out of the primary sources. So I want to talk about Hugo Bleicher a little bit later, but let's start with Odette, since she's kind of the key component of this book. Um, her skill set really made her the perfect recruit for the SOE. I mean, particularly her language skills and her knowledge of France. Right. She was, uh, in one sense, she was perfect. In one sense, she was impossible. Yeah. On the perfect side, the the British intelligence had a problem because if you're going to be it, really any operator in, in occupied France, in particular what they were looking for were couriers, um, the problem was the Germans would who could speak French would know what a British accent sounds like. So they needed someone not only that, could, that was fluent in French, but that did not have a British accent. Well, she was French. So she did not have a, uh, any kind of accent. And so in that sense, she was perfect. She was unlikely in that she, she had no military experience. She was a mother of three. She didn't even think she would be good at the job. Um, and so she, uh, uh, you know, when they first talked to her about it, she's like, are you kidding? I, I can't do that. You know, she never held a gun in her hand. Well, but her personality, combined with the fact that she's French and she wants to help, her personality was, was very strong, and she had the most possible incentive that you could have because her father, Gaston, who, um, when they were in France, was in World War I and was killed by the Germans. Her father died a war hero. And so her grandfather, every Sunday, would take her and her brother to their, to their father's grave, and, and he would explain what happened. And he would say, now, Odette, you, you and your brother, when, when it comes your time, you're going to have to do your duty, too. There'll be, and he predicted there will be another war with Germany. And when the time comes, it will be your duty, yours and your brother's, to do as well as your father did. Well, she never forgot that. She never forgot those words. So when you know, 1942 comes around, it's her, the, her grandfather's prophecy was true, and um, so she has that incentive. And in addition, the Germans had taken her mother's home. Her brother, who was in the French Army, had already been wounded, was in a military hospital. So it was sort of the perfect storm to create someone with the absolute most incentive to go over there and fight that you could possibly have. One of the interesting things also was how effective the SOE was at using women, particularly in occupied France, because it wasn't all that easy for a single man to be walking around because the Nazis would snatch them up and use them for labor. But women were far less suspicious than men at the time. Right. And, that, and that's why they were looking for people just like Odette for that very reason, because it, it's just as you said, if you were a man of military age, you're the perfect category. They know one of two things. Either you're a spy, number one, or number two, you're the perfect category to be sent over to Germany for forced labor. So women were the were the best candidates, particularly for these courier positions who could just blend in. And, and since Odette spoke French, she could just blend in and she was the perfect candidate in that sense. Now, her personality was a bit of a double-edged sword. At one side, she was rash and temperamental, and her training officers were unsure if she'd make a good agent. But I love what her training officer writes in her, her dossier, that if she ever makes it through training, God help the Nazis. Right. That was Selwyn Jebson, SOE's recruiting officer. And he did that just based on the two interviews with her, and, and they were short interviews, but he, he had a knack for finding people. So... His exact words were that he wrote, which I include in the book, his exact words were, God help the Nazis if we can get her near them. I mean, who gets that kind of endorsement, you know, for, you know, based on a couple of interviews? 
but he saw in talking to her in the dialogue, which I include in the book, he he could read her. He knew he knew not only her incentives, but her personality was was very strong. And and while on the one hand she was arrogant and and temperamental, but on the other she was tough as nails. And they could have predicted, you know, if, if you were an SOE and you went to occupy France as a courier, your chance of being captured were about one in two. Right. In fact, the fatality rate of an, SO, an SOE courier was 42%. Only Bomber Command was higher at 45%. And that's amazing. So, you know, when you, when you go over there, there's a real good chance you're going to be captured. And if you're captured, there's a real good chance you're going to be tortured or, and or killed. Yeah, so Hitler, Hitler anyone that went. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Hitler had ordered the execution of basically any SOE officer that had been captured. Right, right. And they didn't do that in all cases. But in fact, he had ordered the capture of all spies. I mean, he had ordered the, the execution of all spies because they weren't covered under the Geneva Convention. And both sides executed spies. So again, it just made it really that much more amazing that, that, that the people that went with SOE were so courageous because all of them, men and women, knew I'm going over there without uniform, so I'm not covered by the, the Geneva Convention. And boy, if I'm caught, you know, it's going to be hell because I'll probably be tortured and executed. So, and as you mentioned, incredible courage. Yeah, absolutely. And as you mentioned, it wasn't all that unlikely that you'd get caught because you had to deal with Hugo Bleicher, who, you know, I, I read about him and I think automatically of the Christoph Waltz character in Inglorious Bastards as kind of the, the ultimate spy, even though. Christoph Waltz's character trying to looking after you know Jewish refugees or people hiding, but kind of the ultimate spy catcher who is just smarter than everyone around him. Well, he was. I like to, and, I, and that's a fictional story, but I I like to compare him to two characters because I think they're really, and, and these are both fictional as well. But on the one hand, he's kind of a Sherlock Holmes because he is brilliant. He's brilliant and he's cunning. Uh, he's a very sharp guy. Uh, and then on the other hand, he's also relentless. And, and I'm thinking of the of the movie uh, The Fugitive with with Sam Gerard played by Tommy right. played famously by Tommy Lee Jones. Um, you know, relentless like that. So while he's smart and he's relentless, he's also charming. He spoke fluent French. He spoke English. He spoke Spanish. And he can literally blend in to any situation. Play the piano. I mean, he could blend in smoothly into any situation. And he used a lot of aliases. In fact, it was almost comical because when the war is over, the British and the Canadians have multiple files on him in different names. They don't know it's all the same person. There's a file for Hugo Bleicher. There's a file for Colonel Henry. There's a file for Heinrich. There's a file for... So he's got all of these aliases that he's used, and they know about this man. They don't know that it's all but one and the same person. So he was, you know, he alone is an amazing character. In fact, we've got a uh, a, a lot of Hollywood interest, and one of the one of the uh, people that, in fact, made an offer to us said this this guy is Academy Award bait. Yep. Because he's such an amazing character, and, and you don't know if he's good, if he's bad. I mean, sometimes he's good, sometimes he's bad, and you never know where he stands. But he's just he is an amazing, amazing character. And he, and he seems, in many respects, to take emotion or any kind of hatred out of his job he seems to generally like and respect those that he's hunting down at least the ones that are professionals 
Yeah, that's, I mean, that's his dilemma when he, you know, we have to, we have to use the, the perspective of war. He's a German. So as a German, you either fight for the German army or you're considered a traitor and you're shot. So he, he has to work for the German military. And they, they put him in, he, he was good with languages and, and he thought he would do translations. Well, they end up saying, well, look, we'll, we'll send you to occupy France as a secret policeman. Um, so his job is to catch spies. That's his job. That's what he's required to do. And that's what he does. And he's very good at it. But once he does that, he turns them over to the SS and the Gestapo because they run the prisons and, and, so, and the concentration camps eventually. So he's done his job. He turns them over. But uh, when he arrests Peter and, and, uh, and Odette, he feels guilty because he knows what's going to happen. They're going to be starved. They're going to be mistreated. They might be tortured. And so he feels guilty. So he visits them in prison and he, and he risking his own neck, sneaks food into him. I mean, who does that? And he wants to take them out. He wants to take them out for lunch. Odette went six months without a shower, six months without a shower. And he offered to take her out so she could take a shower, wash her hair. And she said, no, she said, no. She said, do all the women get this treatment? And he said, well, no. I mean, he didn't arrest all the women there. But she wanted no favors, um, and, and that just, again, shows her tenacity for regardless of how she was treated. She wanted no favors. She was going to take it and, and, and just you know, do her best in the situation that she had. But Hugo definitely you know, felt bad about putting them there and did his best once they were there to sort of watch after them. We'll be right back after this. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. Let me ask your opinion on him because, I mean, there's there's a lot of dilemma and an argument about kind of how we should look at some of the people in the Avvair and others who were... They hated the Nazis. They were essentially pro-Germany, but not pro-Hitler. But then again, the whole just doing my job is the kind of the Nuremberg defense that everyone just kind of says is ridiculous at this point. So what is your opinion on him? Now, he doesn't necessarily, he's, he's certainly not killed for war crimes like many of the other Nazis were. And of course, there's no one that could ever point out that he ever mistreated any prisoners under, under his command. But like you said, he handed them over to the Gestapo. And he certainly knew what was going to happen to them when he did. Right. And, and, and you know, we in the U.S., we, we happen to associate the, the term Nazi with German. But, but that's that, that that's a terrible uh, error because 
only six to six to nine percent of Germans were Nazis. And in fact, the, 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 the Germans wanted to kill Hitler more than we did. I mean, there were 40 attempts on his life and, and, and German intelligence was behind a lot of them. And I detail a number of these in my book. Um, and of course, the, the July 20 putsch was which which was the. The, the, the movie, of course, with, with Tom Cruise that they made Valkyrie, that whole scenario. I mean, it's a true story. Um, Twelve generals and two field marshals uh, either were executed or, or, or committed suicide because they were in on it, including Rommel. Um, so the, the, the German military uh, were not Nazis. The Nazi was a party. It was a political party. So the Avoir, which is the German military intelligence, is always at odds with the Nazi intelligence which was the SD. And um, so anyway, you have that ongoing battle back and forth between them. So Hugo often says, you know, I'm, I'm not, you know, in good standing with the Gestapo. And it was true. I mean, there was one point where they even fired shots at each other. So, uh, so I, I understand the predicament that, that Hugo was in. He's doing his job. And, um, you know, we can say, well, you didn't have to arrest them. You know, because you know that, that they're going to, they're going to be mistreated in prison. Well, <laughs> If he doesn't, if he doesn't arrest him, he's not doing his job, and then he'll be shot. So, on that sense, he would literally have to say, "Okay, then just shoot me." Um, so, right. that's the that's the dilemma that that they deal with. Well, as you mentioned, he d- he does arrest them uh, and and turns them over to the Gestapo. Let's talk a little bit about Odette's life in captivity, because this is this is a cringeworthy part of the book where it's just chapter after chapter where it's just, you can understand. I mean, I guess you can't, you can try to be sympathetic, but very few of us can be empathetic of what she actually had to deal with because she was ruthlessly tortured by the Germans. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to be careful not to, not to commit any spoilers here, but uh, she, she was, yeah, she was, she was definitely mistreated in prison. and, And I detail every aspect of that. Um, in the book, and she held fast. In fact, the, the, the beauty of the, the selection process to get into the SOE was so tough um, for people to make it in. They, they weeded out all the, all the people that, that really wouldn't have cut the mustard once they were over there. No, none of the SOE people that were caught talked, um, including men and women that were captured, many that were tortured, because they were just such tough people that had been recruited carefully and so uh, a number of them, in fact, I, I talk in the book about it, Odette gets on a train, she's thrown a train to Germany with six other SOE women. And um, I, I don't want to spoil it, but it does not turn out well for the other six women. But they didn't talk either. And, and that's just, you know, it's just amazing that, that, you know, we look back and, you know, we don't know all the details of what happened with those people, but um, they were tough. They were tough, and and to not talk when you know that you're going to be tortured, and and still not talk is just, you know, we we lose. I think we lose a lot of the respect for that, and just how difficult it was in the situation once you were captured. Um, but uh, they were tenacious. Well, what, physical torture is one thing, but you also detail in the book some psychological torture that she went through, whether it was listening to others being tortured or even knowing where people were going when they weren't coming back afterwards. Again, I'm not going to give away any spoilers, but there's an extraordinary amount of psychological torture that she endures, which arguably could be even harder than the physical torture. 
Yeah, yeah. You're, are you thinking of the whipping room? Right, the whipping room, and then and then hearing people going to the crematorium. Right, um, right, right. Yeah, I mean that wasn't an intentional psychological warfare. That's just the circumstance that she was put in, where she was put. That wasn't a. That wasn't. I mean, that would be giving them too much credit. But it, it was. It was just part of the nightmare that she was in. I mean, there. This, if you, if you remember the hiding place, uh, Corey Ten Boom. Uh, same thing there. I mean, she was in Ravensbrook as well. She wasn't in the bunker system, but she was just in one of the barracks. But there was a whipping room over there, and they could all hear it when they were all lined up for a roll call in the morning. They could hear the the uh, the cries from the whipping room. So um, it, it wasn't an or it wasn't psychological warfare. It was just one of the terrible things that happened there. Right. Well, and, and the, like you mentioned, she never gave anything up, and then even when she gets moved. The respect that even her guards have for her is extraordinary. Yeah, there's there's no question. It's very similar, and and these these stories almost run parallel in time with with Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the the famous uh, Lutheran pastor who eventually is implicated in the July 20 putsch and eventually executed. But uh, if you read Bonhoeffer's papers, letters and papers from prison, which the, the only reason that that exists, because the guards snuck it out. They loved him so much. They snuck out his letters and papers to to his, his fiance and to his parents and to his friends. Well, Odette had the same respect with, with the with the guards where she was. They were in different prisons, of course, but they had the same respect because the guards could see that she was. She was not a person to be trifled with, and she didn't do anything wrong. She didn't complain. She didn't ask for favors. She didn't accept favors. And so, you know, it was just a strong character, and so they respected that, particularly the commandant of the prison, who, uh, as you know, ends up kind of doing her a favor at the end. Um, but I'll, I'll save the details of that. No, absolutely. I mean— so one thing I do want to talk about is is the effectiveness of her ability as as a courier and as a member of the SOE. Uh, and this is certainly not something that's going to be a surprise to anyone. The SOE was incredibly effective in helping the D-Day invasion succeed. But at the time of the invasion, and, and certainly in the, the year or half leading up to it, both Odette and Peter were in prison. Uh, but can you talk a little bit about the, the network they left behind and how that mattered so much to what the success on D-Day. Yeah, and there's two sides of that. There's the British side and the German side. From the German side, um, after after D-Day and after we landed on the other side, uh, Operation Dragoon, I believe it was called, the Germans knew that she was punished. <laughs> you know, a year later, she's punished for something that, that occurs in southern France, even though she hasn't been there. But the Germans knew that it was because her and Peter and their circuit called uh, Spindle, that their circuit had been so effective that it made it a lot easier for them to land there in, in, in southern, southern France and Caen and Antibes and around that area, that they punished her for it. And on the British side, um, Colonel Buckmaster, Maurice Buckmaster, even says in, in his own book, and he's got some, some great dialogue in his book as well, but in his book, he said particularly that they had done their job so well, meaning Peter and Odette, that they had done their job so well that even though they were captured, 
the circuit that follows them basically has all of the groundwork done, all of the network, all of the, all of the, um, the contacts with the French resistance that, uh, that it made it, you know, I don't want to say easy, but it made it a lot easier for them. Uh, and the Germans knew that. So both sides recognize that. Well, I mean, that's, that's, Talk about a job well done is when you can step away from it and let those that you taught do it to such an effectiveness. Not that they stepped away voluntarily, but when they were pulled away from the ability to run the spiring, that they had set it up so well that it could continue on and so effectively. Yeah, and they would be debriefing. I mean, Peter would fly back to London and he would debrief and say, here's what we have. So he's naming not only what's going on in southern France with the SOE circuits around him, but with the French resistance and, and the players that they have in place, because remember, they're running money to them, they're running ammo and guns to them, but also to say, look, the Gestapo has cracked this area, um, look out for this guy, uh, Colonel Henry, you know, look out for her. And so he would, he would give them very, very specific details, uh, as well as they've got the constant radio traffic going back and forth. So all of that helped to give London the big picture so let me talk a little bit, let me wrap this up by talking a little about the aftermath, because you do kind of lay it out in the book about how this really kind of circles back around to our first conversation about why this book matters and why it needs to be written, because there was controversy for many years about whether or not Odette and Peter should get the kind of credit that they did. Now, they get a massive award from the British government, but as you mentioned, so much of this was classified that there was very little they could actually say about what they did. I kind of think of what Alan Turing went through in many cases of not being able to come right out and say, hey, look, I'm a hero. I did all this stuff, so stop treating me badly. She had to go through a lot of things. It even came to the point of lawsuits and libel and, and all these different things about what they did during the war. Yeah, it's all classified. So they anybody intelligent, they pop off had to do this. They, they have to sign uh, a document. It has to do with the Official Secrets Act, which basically says you can never tell anybody anything about what you did during the war. So that that's and we don't, as you know, on our side as a historian coming back, stuff isn't even doesn't even start to begin to be declassified until the early '80s, and then it sort of trickles out from there. But so they're under yeah they're under severe demands for for um, you know basically uh, they're gagged. But the, I cover that in, in the appendix to the book because there, there was a lot of misinformation. In fact, there, Odette's, I'm in touch with two of, uh, with two of her granddaughters, and their family is, is, has just been livid about this because it was all, it was all a lot, you know, based on lies. And the family has been, has been um, you know, suffering through these decades because there, there was a lot of misinformation circulating around, and, and I'll just give a, a, a snapshot of it. Uh, there was a, when, when they were captured, Peter had on him a message, um, and the message had a name of one of the safe houses. Well, the Germans, of course, got that, and they arrested this guy and, and tortured him, and he lost an eye. And so that guy was livid that, you know, Peter did not, and we don't know if, you know, Peter got it an hour before, but he was livid that Peter did not burn that message because it, it, that's how the Germans captured him. And so he blames, he blames them. And then Odette, when she debriefed, this is, you know, right after she gets back, this same gentleman was known to have money had disappeared. Money that they gave him for the, for the French resistance circuit just disappeared. 
And so she tells British intelligence that. So, of course, they come back around him. Hey, where's all this money that we gave you? So those two things are, you know, never can. No one knows that. They don't know that. Here's why. Here's why the complaint came forward. So this gentleman with about four or five other of his um, French resistance buddies uh, made a stink. Uh, well, these two never should have been awarded. They never should have. Well, that that was <laughs> that was why they, they were mad at both of them for for those two reasons. Uh, and then there was another, there was a woman later in, in the British government uh, that added insult to injury because she challenged Odette's awards, uh, claiming that, well, we don't know that all this, all this really happened to her. Well, the bottom line, and it came out, and I cover this in the book, was that she was mad that, that they fell in love and she thought it was improper that a courier should be falling in love with her commanding officer. That's improper, so therefore all of her awards should be rescinded. I mean, it's ludicrous. But that's what it all stemmed from. So, Larry, before I wrap this up, if you can kind of give us a quick overview for those that are kind of their interest has been piqued by the story of Adept Sampson, which is such an incredible story. If you can just give, give us a quick overview of the book to kind of sell, sell the topic and uh, get people thinking about wanting to, to read this. Sure. Here's, here's the, the answer. And this is, in fact, why I wrote the book. The story, I mean, it's really a combination of stories that we sort of know. If you remember the book Unbroken or you saw the movie, Louis, this is like that, except Louis Zamperini is a woman. And remember, Louis Zamperini, as amazing as that story was, he, he received no medals for bravery or valor or courage, whereas Odette cleaned house. I mean, she got the George Cross, first woman ever to receive it. She got France's highest honor, the Chevalier de la Legion d'Honneur, first woman ever to receive it, and she received the Order of the British Empire. I mean, she was as highly decorated as you can possibly get. And the second aspect of what this book is about, it's kind of like if you saw the movie Catch Me If You Can, where Leonardo DiCaprio is running from Tom Hanks, the FBI guy that's chasing him around the country, and then around in France, eventually catches him in France. Um, that sort of cat and mouse chase. Well, that's, that's the story, too, because you have Hugo Bleicher, the best spy catcher in history, chasing them around France. Um, so those are the two overarching things that are going on. And then weaving through the middle of all that is a love story because Peter, the commanding officer and Odette, his courier fall in love. So all of that's blending together in one story. And it's written like a novel, but is a nonfiction thriller. The title is Codename Lice, the true story of the woman who became World War II's most highly decorated spy. The author is Larry Loftus. The book is out now. So, Larry, thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. We truly appreciate your time. Thank you, Vince. Appreciate you having me on. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution to help support future educational programming. Please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. Thank you, and we'll see you next week. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us.